You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Okay, put down that phone for a moment, unless, of course, you're listening to the show on it. But if you're texting, tweeting, or scrolling, stop. We want your undivided attention. I know this is like asking Luke to give up his lightsaber. Linus his blanket. My blanket, Charlie Brown. I can't be without it. The Statue of Liberty, her torch. But consider that a Pew Research study found that 89% of adults took out their phones during their most recent social interaction. Are we losing the ability to talk face-to-face without cradling high-tech gadgetry in our hand? I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology. And in this episode... Oh, hang on. Let me just check this text. I'll just send a quick response. I'll refill the bird feeder this weekend. See you tonight. Okay, send that. So, um, well, we're connected more than ever. We're communicating all the time. But are we engaging in actual conversations, truly opening up and listening? Psychologists say there's no substitute for uninterrupted face-to-face time. And that by spending more time texting than talking... We're losing our ability to empathize with others. We'll hear about that research, plus possible strategies to address our digital distractedness, including something a bit paradoxical, technology that talks back to us. This Barbie doll holds up her end of the conversation. Do you ever get in a curious mood? You know, where you can't stop wondering about everything around you? It's look who's not talking, and apparently who is. It may not be news to you that we carry our mobile devices everywhere, that we are connected at all times. Technology is pervasive, you get it. And yet, it can be startling to hear instances where devices nose their way into very personal relationships. In the military, the term band of brothers, which originated with Shakespeare, describes a group so dedicated to one another, they're more like family than colleagues, and so loyal that members are willing to spill their own blood to save someone else. In the military, the bonds within these bands of brothers are essential to cohesion and efficiency. Soldiers who are in training or deployed together have shared experiences from the quality of mess hall fare to the horror of the battlefield. And since time immemorial, they've talked amongst themselves, sharing their feelings about it all. But that may be changing. Writing in an op-ed piece for the New York Times, John Spencer, 
a major in the U.S. Army and an historian at the Modern War Institute at West Point, says he's noticed a trend among his troops that disturbs him. It was brought to his attention in 2008 when he saw how his soldiers reacted after an incident in Baghdad. Major Spencer was a captain at the time and a platoon leader. He says that he and about 20 soldiers on combat patrol were in their vehicles driving along a wall en route to an Iraqi checkpoint. Along the street we were driving on, the walls were concrete. And as they were driving, uh, somebody, uh, an enemy, had thrown a grenade over the wall, uh, tipping to hit the soldiers. Um, it didn't hit the soldiers. It actually rolled past the soldiers and blew up and unfortunately killed an Iraqi child. When I got on scene, uh, that child had already been taken away by the ambulance, and the soldiers were still on the ground providing security. And then we had to go through a certain drill where you question people, you find out if anybody saw anything. Of course, you try to get the person that did it. This sounds traumatic, uh, but of course, (laughs) war is traumatic. Was there any particular reaction to your men to this incident? So, I mean, I questioned them, but, you know, the questions are very, you're on the scene, they're very, like, what happened? So I I didn't really ask how they felt about the situation, although I I know that the feelings are of anger that they couldn't respond because the person basically got away. I didn't really get a chance to question them on the scene about, you know, how anybody felt about the child and seeing the casualty uh, being taken away. Where did you go after this patrol? Can you tell me that and, and what happened and why it surprised you? We moved back to our where we live, and it's called a combat outpost at that point. Um, we went back, and there's the normal things that you do when you come back in off of patrol. You park your vehicles. You make sure they're clean. One of the leaders will turn in a written report. So I left to report the actions that I knew of from my unit. Um, and about an hour after that, I went to go find them to really to ask those personal questions. So these are combat engagements, so they're very stress-filled, adrenaline-pumping And it's just a normal thing for me to go talk to the soldiers. And I was very surprised that, one, they had finished all those after-patrol things, and they weren't grouped in any type of a way talking to each other. I didn't – I would normally find, you know, three or four people in the areas where they live talking about, like, hey, this just happened. And trying to make sense of it is what I call it, sense-making. I found them in a computer lab, and they were behind a computer in a computer lab. Well, what were they doing? I mean, were they writing about their experiences? Were they documenting what had just happened to them? At this time, the computer lab is this 24-hour thing. They were they were basically reaching out to somebody else through some had Facebook up, and at this time, you know, MySpace was still around, and writing to somebody about what had just happened to them, and basically sharing those feelings with somebody else because there's this constant communication now between basically the home front and the front line. Well. The basis of your op-ed was to point out how this is different. I mean, that, you know, you've been in the military for a while. How would the soldiers have processed their experience, to use big words on it, you know, or or simply talk to one another to sort of debrief one another a a decade ago? I I just happened to have jumped into combat in 2003. So that's really what I used in my article and what I used to date to reflect back to a time when we didn't have immediate access to outside our organizations. Normally, and in 2003, when we came back from patrol, we did all the things I just talked about, about parking our vehicles and things. But we actually lived on our vehicles or we slept in large rooms and all we did was talk to each other. So after something like this, we would group together and just be sitting around talking about all the different 
feelings or things we saw or really making sense of it. And I think, to me, that was the critical difference in this one snapshot in time is those soldiers weren't doing that. My fear, as a person who studied war, you know, whether it was the Civil War, sitting around a campfire or in the trenches of World War One, that ability to make sense of what happened, to rely on the person to your left or right, if we lose that, it seriously changes just a human's ability to do the things that happen in war. This sounds like a serious matter to me, John, because I think that it's a well-known truth that soldiers are fighting for one another, not for policies that might be devised by politicians thousands of miles away, the the band of brothers phenomenon, right? Yes, yeah. And I, from the time I was a boy, I believed in that. That's what we fight for. Um, and I'm not saying that's all gone, but I'm saying I saw a critical decline in that. The bonds that you would form in these shared hardships, these experiences are really the, the edge of human stress and fear and the emotions are amazing in these situations of live combat those bonds you form with each other aren't only formed in those moments but they're the fact that that's your best friend that's the person you've shared everything with the social cohesion between each other being the foundation of what allows these soldiers to fight so this ability to reach out to some external friend uh, family social support network means that you're not then reaching to the person to your left or right. Well, what about the benefits? I mean, obviously, there's some benefits to this uh, communication capability that they can be in touch, for example, with their families back home. Uh, That would sound like a positive, or or maybe it's just a distraction. Yeah, that that becomes a very debatable topic, because the yearning for your family, the people you love, is is definitely there. So this ability to connect is... It's almost like a tethering because you feel like you must connect. But then, like you said, the distractions of everyday life where in the past you you write a letter and you wait for that letter to come back, and that that was a whole process as well. This is like immediately they're not only learning about what's happening to you, but you're learning about what's happening to them. So when your wife is having a problem or your family is having a problem, it will impact combat operations when they are hearing about it. If I were looking at this from the standpoint of the Joint Chiefs, I might say, okay, Can you give me any examples where this actually affected the, uh, you know, the ability to to do what the military has to do there, that this has real consequences, not just theoretical ones? Yeah. um, In combat missions where there was high-stress activity, people of the small group, so I'm talking four to six, that would normally move together and talk to each other when they had a problem. So let's say they're entering a house. I would be standing behind them, and they would be arguing with each other on, hey, I said that we're going to go this way. Now, some of that is they're just peers, so if it was a direct order, they would move in action. But that, again, started to surprise me when I had never seen that before. Is it simply the indecisiveness, the fact that they didn't know one another well enough to know what to do? Or was it the arguing? What was it about it that disturbed you? So what disturbed me is uh, you can't know each other you can't communicate quickly and also if we had injured individuals normally i would see a reaction with that individual because they were so close to that person versus now i have an injured person i saw this measured difference in feeling towards a person which i think transfers to action and i want i want it to be actually researched because it's only going to get worse as everything that we do even in within the military and in our actual lives as humans 
becomes this more connected individual action. War is not individual. It's a group action. And it has to be, or you won't win against a very cohesive enemy that is fighting you. You can't have an army of one. That's right. Major John Spencer, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Uh, Thank you. John Spencer is a major in the United States Army and a scholar at the Modern War Institute at the United States Military Academy at West Point. His op-ed, A Band of Tweeters, appeared in the New York Times, and you can find a link to it on our website. Well, it's a little dismaying that technology that's intended to increase our intercommunication with each other is in some cases a real threat to it. Coming up, a toy whose makers say will increase conversation time with children by using speech recognition technology. Sarah Wolfeck briefly gave some insight on how her team came up with the dialogue for this famous children's companion. See if you can guess which one it is. Together, we sort of mutually agreed on the phrase world's best babysitter as sort of the place to start from in terms of her personality. Like this is a 17-year-old girl who's just the coolest babysitter ever who comes over to your house and you sit down in your room knee to knee and you talk about everything from horses to sequency shoes to being a scientist when you grow up to everything. Give me an example of a line of dialogue that you maybe had to work on a little bit so it sounded like something that a 17-year-old would say. I think coming up with the right way to talk about very empathy-based conversations. We really wanted to make sure that she still can have vulnerabilities and so that she could still need the child to help her with things because that's sort of the true basis of a friendship is that you both help each other out when things are hard or when you're dealing with something that's particularly challenging. And so um, one of my favorite lines that one of our other writers wrote is a conversation about going out to dinner with your family on your birthday and that moment where you feel a little bit nervous and embarrassed when the waiters all sing happy birthday and you're the center of attention. She talks about that and says, I kind of feel nervous sometimes when everyone's singing. Do you ever feel that way? And that's something I think kids can really relate to a lot. And so trying to find the right way to talk about that in a way that didn't make her sound not genuine, but really like she had experienced that was something that we, you know, that was a particular line that stuck out for me. Sarah Wolfeck is the head writer and creative director for Hello, Barbie. Hear from the CEO of the company that developed her 8,000 lines of dialogue next. It's Look Who's Not Talking on Big Picture Science. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality, with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash labxnas. 
Okay, you're troubled by how technology interferes with face-to-face conversations, but what can we do about it? Well, some people think the answer is not to get rid of our devices, but to build smarter ones. If we're not talking enough, well, then make the next generation device a real conversationalist. And in the toy business, it's already begun. Meet Hello Barbie. The iconic doll made by Mattel is old enough now to have an AARP membership, but the San Francisco-based entertainment company Toy Talk has given her a high-tech update. Batteries in her thighs, now a shade thicker to accommodate them, power the chip in her back and the microphone in her bling necklace. When children talk to this Barbie, she talks back. You're back! Yay! I've really missed you. What do you want to do first today? Barbie chats about herself, asks questions, learns a child's likes and dislikes, which are stored in a cloud database, and incorporates them in conversations. Now, parents have access to the database, and they can edit the topics and delete private information. Yet the fact that the doll is connected to the cloud at all has raised concerns from privacy groups about the system's vulnerability to hackers. Hello Barbie reflects our fears of technology as well as our enthusiasm for its latest advances. Toy Talk says that its goal is to get children engaged in conversation. And Barbie's advanced speech recognition software has even prompted some to call her an example of artificial intelligence. Toy Talk CEO Oren Jacob has experience creating engaging characters. He did it phenomenally well as the CEO of Pixar and is part of the team that created the film Toy Story. Oren, I had a talking doll when I was growing up, and this was a baby that would cry when you tip it upside down. Maybe she had a handful of greetings, hello, and so forth, if you pulled a string in the back. How is Hello Barbie different from the doll that I grew up with? Hello Barbie is different in a number of ways. Uh, The first one is that she can say thousands and thousands and thousands of things. I think we have over 8,000 different pieces of dialogue in market already uh, with the doll today. Um, And really, most importantly, um, she can listen to what you're saying and try to understand what you say and then respond back. So this is a doll that can listen and have a conversation with you and respond. I mean, that's more than what some adults will do with us. (laughs) That's perhaps true. (laughs) Yes, Barbie will talk back to you as long as you want to talk to her and have her batteries charged. That's correct. She will always be a friendly conversationalist to you. There's something to like about every season, don't you think? And she wants you to talk about the weather now, so if you want to give it a go, you should press there and say the weather's great and see where it goes. Uh, Okay, so so I'm holding Hello Barbie now, and in every way she looks like the doll that I had while growing up. Hold the button down and then say the weather's great today, Barbie. So I'm holding the button down. The weather is beautiful today, Barbie. Ice skating in the winter, beach time in the summer. Which season do you like best? Well, Barbie, I think I prefer walking around in the fall. Yes, I love the way the air smells in the fall. What about you? What's your favorite thing about it? Uh, one of my favorite bits of, of Barbie goes into, um, she asks about your favorite subject in school. And for kids who answer in the sciences, she may get onto biology. Do you like biology versus chemistry or physics? I like biology. Do you like zoology or botany? You talk about animals versus plants and sort of dives down to the various segments of science. Did you have any conversations where you were trying to figure out what an appropriate response would be for... Barbie to a child's question, and that there was one response that was appropriate and one that maybe wasn't appropriate, and can you tell me why that would be? Um, there, there are a couple. It's hard to generalize that. I guess on a case-by-case basis, we try to use the filter of Barbie the character as um, being friendly and encouraging 
um, a conversational play partner with the child. And so when children ask us about their pets or their family members or other um, uh, their loved ones, uh, how Barbie responds is very sensitive to folks. We can't assume that that family has two parents, has one passed, is one sick, are they all healthy? Is that true of their siblings or their pets? Most people have goldfish pass away, so you can usually assume a pet has passed away in the house to some degree. But uh, to be sensitive to all those different situations is actually quite a difficult bit of dialogue as a writer um, to craft. So our writing team worked very hard on that and also very hard on accommodating all the responses that the variety of children's experiences will present to us as adults. She has to be friends to all of them. Children said to you that they wanted Barbie to talk back to them. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what we should provide to children. So I'm wondering uh, what the motivation is behind creating a doll that will actually talk to children and not just talk to them in their minds. Because, of course, for a very long time, children just used their imagination and all their dolls and their stuffed animals and so forth did talk to them. They didn't need them to literally respond. I guess having being a parent of three children myself, today are 7, 9, 11, um, I'm a strong supporter of individual child play by themselves with uh, traditional toys, dolls, Legos, Tonka trucks, the whole scene. It's a different play pattern when you have several kids in the same playroom, either in parallel play or conversationally playing with each other, and a different play pattern again when there's an adult and a child playing, and are all different mixes of those things. In this case, in the interactive arts, we offer lots of things to kids, usually through touchscreen gaming, controller-based gaming, or keyboard-based PC gaming. And we have linear media coming inbound through television, DVD, and scripted film. Uh, Here's a case where we can offer interactive entertainment that involves the use of language. And I know from my own children, watching them develop and grow, and certainly it's cited in the press and many uh, research projects have been done on this, but the use of language in general is a very important thing, both in a play pattern to exist and developmentally. And to offer entertainment experiences to take advantage of our mouth and our ability to speak, as opposed to our fingers and our ability to twitch, seemed like an obvious thing to extend a new play pattern that we can now bring to market for the first time, because we can actually do this. I mean, if you don't press the button on the doll, she's a normal doll like you always had. So it is an option the child has to add in when they want to the play pattern and puts them in control of that decision. And I think then, yeah, I like kids to decide. I think they will talk to her. I hope they do. I think she's fun. And then when they don't want to, they don't have to. Let's talk a bit more about the technology itself and what makes this possible. Now, I remember growing up with Barbie. Um, she always had a little bit of an attitude. You could say she had a chip on her shoulder. In this case, her chip is where? Where is her chip? <laughs> uh, the custom design hardware is inside her torso. And the cloud computing power can process speech in real time now. Now, if you were to slow it down, you said that she's able to talk in real time. If you were to slow it down, what actually is happening? The child is saying something. Barbie is recognizing that, and it's recorded somewhere and then sent to a cloud and analyzed. What is the process? Uh, that's almost what's happening. But when, once you press the button down, as you are speaking in real time, that audio is captured by the microphone, converted into a, a file type we can recognize, and is streamed off the doll while you're speaking. So we begin to recognize your speech, let's say, a quarter to a half a second after you start talking. And we're chasing the speech you're saying while you say it about a quarter second behind you, guessing at each word as you say it, and doing our best to recognize those words accurately. When you stop talking and let go of the microphone button, that's a signal that you finished what you're saying. And now the words we have queued up and and figured out while you spoke for the last five seconds are processed by us. Um, And then we start studying sort of what you said. Was there a sentence structure? Was there a noun and a verb and a subject and an object? 
and do a lot of matches of words. If we're in a discussion about favorite fruits and vegetables, did you mention broccoli or lemons or tomatoes or carrots? And that's the sort of the the art and science of natural language processing. Hey, do you ever get in a curious mood? You know, where you can't stop wondering about everything around you? Um, yes, and when I am in a curious mood, I listen to big picture science. Oh, it's when you're really interested in learning new things. Like earlier, Chelsea asked me what I knew about elephants. So I started reading about them and I learned so many interesting facts. Do you know anything about elephants? In what I've read about Hello Barbie, she has been described as an example of artificial intelligence. And do you think of what she's doing as AI? Is this an example of AI? Is it a form of AI? I guess when I've thought about that more and more and more, the term artificial intelligence becomes less and less specific to me. Have we created a character you can talk to? Yes, to some degree, I think we have. Is it appealing? I hope it is. And I think that it is as well, too. I'm very proud of the work we've done. Will it get better next year? Yes, it will. Has any child been confused that's not a human? No, it's a doll in their hand. It's 11 inches tall, and they'd say it's a doll because they have to recharge it every hour. So there's no ambiguity there. And any child I've seen play with anything we produce, digital or physical good, but our apps or dolls. So that people say that. I just don't buy that at all. I've never seen it happen. And is there any sort of sentient being there? Not at all. It's a fun play pattern that uses voice. And I have seen no child I've played tested with ever confuse it for anything other than that. I want to raise the question of privacy and what concerns people may have that the system could be hacked in any way. Of course, um, anything that is connected to the internet, anything that is connected to the cloud raises these questions of whether or not it has vulnerabilities. And so are you concerned that a hacker could get into any of the online information or any of the children's conversations? Um, we've certainly done our best to make that be pointedly difficult in lots of ways. We're talking about parents and children here and conversation. And so we put a lot of effort into making that, making our online services and the products we work with, including Hello Barty, be as secure as we can. To do that, we better make sure that we are as upfront and transparent with parents as possible and to put parents in direct control of that data at all times. And that has been the case since the company's founding through to today. So for parents who do have a concern about that, they're welcome to go see what was said with, between their child and Barbie in particular, because we often question, what do you ta- want to talk about? When do- well, here, here's what your kid talked about. There it is. And most parents love that we do that. If you were like, hey, I don't want that, that particular audio file on your servers, fine, poke delete and it's gone. Or, or poke delete on all of them, close your account, and they're all gone in the course of seconds of the request coming in. Well, then finally, um, do you have any other plans to update Dolls of My Childhood, for example, Ken or G.I. Joe. <laughs> um, I'll let you talk to Mattel about future product plans, but of course we're gonna, we decided to keep working with them on, on other products going forward. Ken always seemed sort of the quiet type in my mind. <laughs> that wasn't true in Toy Story 3, but maybe it's true in the actual doll. I don't know. <laughs> well, Oren Jacob, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for the time. Appreciate it very much. Now, you're not a doll, right? You're not a living doll. <laughs> no, I'm very much not. <laughs> okay, so the technology's not there yet. No, it's not yet. Call me next year. Oren Jacob is the CEO of Toy Talk, a San Francisco-based entertainment company. Okay, well, let's say you're too old for Barbie dolls and your approach to dealing with our technology-tethered world is not owning smarter stuff, but less stuff. Now, you probably can't imagine giving up your devices. I mean, what if you need to look up the GNP of Bulgaria or, or you're worried about an important email from someone that might come in sometime? So don't give up your devices. Take a break instead. Levi Felix is the founder of Digital Detox and... And the director of Camp Grounded, Summer Camp for Adults. 
Now, Camp Grounded is not, as you may think, where you wire your lightning rod or learn to make espresso, although you can drink coffee there. But you need to leave your phone at the gate. This camp is device-free. Yeah, 100% device-free. No cell phones, no screens at all, even no watches. Just the present moment. Okay, but you have some plumbing, right? So we can still have water and <laughs> toilet activity? Yeah, we're, we're not against technology, right? Like, a good pencil is great. And what do you ask of these campers to do when they arrive? Throw all their digital <laughs> devices into a great big barrel? What do they do? So when campers arrive, they hand over all their gadgets, all their screens, all their technologies, and then go into the camp world where they won't be listening you know, to any podcasts or watching any YouTube videos for the next four days. What's the average number of devices that one of these campers carries on them as they, as they come to your gates? Well, some campers come in and they've got a new Apple Watch and they've got an iPad and they've got a GPS helmet for their motorcycle and then they've got their computers. Other people come in and they're just giving us their phone. People who come to camp, you know, the ages range 19 to 78 years old. And so it's a wide range of people who are saying, you know, I'm looking to unplug. And some people are spending, you know, 14 hours a day on their device, and some are spending eight hours a day on their device. But the average camper at Camp Grounded is spending somewhere around 10 hours a day looking at a screen. Well, Levi, if we leave all our devices at the door, what do we do at your camp? Well, we ask our, our campers the same question. What is it that you're looking for in the screen, right? Connection community, creativity, information, the idea of expanding our horizons. So at Camp Grounded, we offer over 50 play shops and workshops, you know, from baking bread to truffle making to poetry to hip-hop dance. And then we give people the opportunity to play sports and games. And also to reflect, we have, you know, a whole afternoon of silence where there's no talking. And all there is is reflecting and sitting by the lake and thinking about, you know, what happens when we give ourselves permission to step back. Well, what do, what do these campers say the experience is like? And obviously you've done this yourself. What is it like to give up your, your tether to the electronic world? At first, when people give up their devices, there might be a sense of anxiety or a sense of, I don't know, I feel like I'm missing out. But by the end, you know, campers come up and they say, I got the best sleep I've had you know, in 25 years. Or they say, you know what, the world is still spinning and it's okay, even if I wasn't on my email. We had other campers tell us, I went home and I, I told my boss that I didn't want to be available all the time, but when I was going to be at the office, I was going to be more effective and, and more prudent about my work efforts. And so we've had major changes. We had a camper who lost 30 pounds after camp because he stopped eating his meals behind a screen and thus became more sensitive to his diets and to what he was actually eating. Well, finally, Levi, have you had anyone who quit, who after a day or a few hours said, get me back on Twitter, get me back on Facebook, I can't stand it, and they go screaming from the campgrounds? No, we've never had anyone leave early to go back to their devices. And I think when people give themselves space to think about the things that they normally don't get to think about, and they get to connect with other people in real time in ways that they normally don't, i.e. hugging, holding hands, singing, dancing, they step back and say, you know what, that's what living is like. I feel super alive when I'm in the presence of other people who are also in the presence of me. Well, Levi Felix, thank you so much for speaking with us. Yeah, thank you for having me today. I appreciate it. Levi Felix is the director of Camp Grounded and the founder of Digital Detox. Okay, maybe you need a more sustained effort to help you break your texting habits. But if the idea of walking around without your smartphone makes you twitchier than a bacon salesman in a piranha tank, why not ease yourself off your addiction? Substitute a fake phone for your real one.
My name is Van Gould, and I am one of the co-founders of No Phone Company. Yes, for $15 or so, you can replace your $600 smartphone that does everything with a black rectangle of the same dimensions that does nothing. A no phone. Okay, Van, I'm uh, holding a no phone here. Maybe you could tell me how to turn this thing on, and then we can get started. Yeah, the interesting thing about the no phone is you can't turn it on at all. It's a technology-free alternative to constant hand-to-phone contact. In other words, it's a fake phone for people who are addicted to real phones. It's kind of like a blankie, almost a modern-day blankie for people who kind of always need that plastic rectangle to hold in their hand. (laughs) Well, I mean, it it does, at least from, you know, two feet away and more. It it looks like a smartphone. It's a block of black plastic and has the right dimensions and all that sort of thing. But, of course, it has no obvious, I mean, it has no screen. It has no, no buttons that work. It has no input. It's just blank. Now, you made this not just to fool people that you could afford a smartphone when, in fact, you couldn't. You built this for a reason. What was the reason? We found ourselves using our phones way too much. We were actually at a rooftop bar. And we were all on our phones like we always are. And we looked up from our phones and like everyone in the bar was holding a phone or a device. They were like looking at it. They were swiping it. They were, you know, no one was talking to each other. And we were kind of just like, man, this is crazy. What if we could give everyone a plastic rectangle to hold and communicate with each other? And, you know, it was kind of like one of those, you know, drunken ideas. And then the uh, the next day we decided, hey, let's try to make this for ourselves. And we went to a 3D printing store and You know, we started trying it out, and then people on the Internet were like, hey, I I need this for my brother, I need this for my sister, I want to try this out for myself. And so, yeah, it kind of blew up a little bit. Well, have you sold a lot of these things? Yeah, we've uh, we've sold over 3,500 no-phones across the world. Everyone, no matter what language you speak, uh, phone addiction is something we have in common. We had some orders from this place called Reunion. Um, So we shipped to some places we never actually heard of. This place, Reunion, is a little French territory island off the coast of Madagascar. And uh, some some no-foods have been shipped there and uh, pretty much everywhere around the world. What about customer testimonials? I mean, do do any of your clients write back and say, you've done it. You've you've broken my, my smartphone habit. I don't stand around staring at this small little screen all the time. Absolutely. I think, uh, we, you know, we've had people who uh, they definitely like how they can now, you know, uh, go on a date and, and, you know, put that no phone in their pocket. Uh, you know, you might try to use it. You might take it out because it feels just like a phone in your pocket. You might take it out, try to use it. The great thing about the no phone is it doesn't work. There's no features. So, you know, you have to go back to your date and uh, and enjoy, uh, you know, the human being in front of you. Yeah, well, let, let's hope that my date also has a no phone. <laughs> otherwise, it <laughs> exactly. might be, otherwise, it might be no fun. I, I don't know. Well, uh, final question then, Van. Is this going to go big? You said you've already sold 3,500 of them. You haven't been at this for very long. What, what's the prognosis? We recently actually came out with a no phone that has even less features, uh, the no phone zero. It no longer has any uh, fake buttons or fake logos or anything. It's just simply a plastic rectangle, kind of has that rectangle feel in your hand, and it's it's only $5. So we'll see what happens. Um, our, you know, our goal is definitely to become the, the biggest fake phone company in the world. So we'll see. <laughs> Well, I got to say, that's that's a noble idea. I wish you luck, Van Gold. Thanks so very much for uh, speaking with me on a real kind of phone. Hey, thanks so much. Great talking to you. 
Van Gould is one of the co-founders of the No Phone Company. Do you think that if you have a no phone, you'll have an easier time choosing a ringtone? Okay, so we're addressing our technology addiction in many ways. Well, however you do it, MIT professor Sherry Turkle urges you to do something because there's more at stake than etiquette. When we don't talk face-to-face, we lose our ability to empathize. It's look who's not talking on Big Picture Science. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Sometimes I think I could board the commuter train in my pajamas and no one would notice. No one looks up anymore. And it's not only on public transit that we may feel invisible. It happens in the dining room. Guess who's coming to dinner? Everyone's smartphone. It's just another item of the family place setting, as familiar as the fork. But you might be thinking, what does it matter? Sure, everyone has their phones out all the time, but so what? Well, it wasn't always so. There was a time long ago seen a trendy cafe year 2003 hi you made it yeah i know this traffic it's terrible i know it's great to see you though have a seat yeah it's great to see you too hey want a coffee well actually i went ahead and ordered your latte oh sure yeah that's perfect hey i like your new haircut thanks it's just easier shorter Did you hear from Sarah? Did she get her residency at the hospital? You know, I'm not sure. I'll find out when I see her tonight. How you been? But these days, we look down more than we look up. Scene a vegan hipster artisanal cafe, year 2015. Oh, hi. Hi. Have a seat. Thanks. I'm texting Sarah. How is Sarah? Uh, She she just got her thing at the thing. That's cool. When did she start? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, if you want some coffee, that'd be cool. I could get some when I... This is weird. Why isn't this page refreshing? Sure, I'd like some coffee. So, uh, I'm going to New York next week. Neat. Hey, Andy sent me a snap. Yeah, my brother and I are going to go check out Coney Island. And I finally shaved off all my hair and drew a woodland scene on my bald head with felt-tip pens. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. Look at this YouTube video of the cat using a can opener. It's hilarious. MIT professor Sherry Turkle has been keeping an eye on our technology habits since the first personal computers colonized our desks. Since then, she's carefully tracked the rise of digital devices and the emergence of our 24-7 online lives. Dr. Turkle says that during this time, she's seen not just that we're less comfortable with conversation, but her research suggests that there are consequences to avoiding eye contact. We're losing our ability to empathize. Dr. Turkle's book is... Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age. Now, Sherry, I'm just going to keep my phone on. I'm waiting for a text to come in. Is it okay if I just set this here? And that would be not a good idea. No. No. I could just turn it off then. No, that wouldn't be a good idea either. This is, I know this is going to sound like crazy, but research shows that if you put a phone visibly on the table between you and another person, two things happen. The quality of the conversation changes. It becomes more superficial. 
And second, the connection between you and the other person becomes shallower. You care less about each other. You, you feel less empathy toward each other. Okay, so the phone has to go. I can't keep it out. I put the <laughs> phone away. Okay. But what is very interesting about what you said, uh, I mean, there are many interesting points, is just having the phone on the table, even if it's turned off, is yes. distracting. Say more about that. Why? Even a silent phone disconnects us. It's because, and you know, when you think about it, it sort of makes sense. The phone signals to us that this is a conversation that could be interrupted. You know, 89% of Americans say that in their last social encounter, when they were hanging with their friends, they turned to their phone for a text, a message, to check something. They interrupted a conversation to go to their phone. And 82% say it made the conversation worse. Well, you one of the things you're trying to do, you write about, is reclaim conversation. And we're having it right now. And what's so lovely is that you've come into the studio. So I'm looking at you. Yes. And a lot of things are happening when people are having a conversation, aren't they? It's not just their words, but we're looking at each other's faces, the gestures, the nodding. You just, yeah. you just nodded. Why is that so important, this, this face-to-face conversation? Well, because we're built to use our bodies, our eye contact, our gestures, our faces, our, our amazing vehicles of communication that tell us where we are and that tell us the other person's feeling state. So we are voices, bodies, and faces that are set up as empathy machines. And it sounds as though it's not just something that is pleasurable. This is one of the arguments that you make in your writing. It is highly pleasurable for me to have someone come into our studio so I can talk face-to-face. But is it necessary to our brain function, to our health? Yes, it is necessary. Because without it, we are really stumbling in the dark. I'll give you an example of how this stumbling works. Just a, a simple example from my own life. It's just jumping into my head because it's from my own life. So I teach at MIT... And my students no longer really want to come to office hours. This is a relatively new development, but it's not just me, and it's not just MIT students. It's all over the country. Students would rather send an email, explain their problem perfectly, because I ask them, why don't you want to see me? (laughs) I'm a good talker, you know. And they would rather send a perfect email, and I, their model is that I will send them a perfect email back that addresses exactly their problem. It's interesting you use the word perfect. So it sounds like we're able to craft our image and be very precise and careful about how we present ourselves to other people if we do it through all these other media, whereas conversations are messy and they can be uncomfortable Yes, and they can be hard. One young man I interviewed who was talking about how he tries to avoid conversations because they make him feel so vulnerable And I said, what's wrong with conversation? And he said, conversation, I'll tell you what's wrong with conversation. It takes place in real time, and you can't control what you're going to say. And, you know, he was right. That's everything that's wrong with conversation, and it's everything that's right with conversation. Now, instead, what happens is people flee from that and literally go to their phone in the middle of a conversation. They'll use that moment of lull as a reason to look up something. To give an idea of just how, how pervasive this is, of the many examples you give in your book, there's the one of someone, I shouldn't laugh, but I'm startled by it, of texting during a funeral. Yes. Because it was a funeral of someone I knew, and these people were people I knew, I, I didn't feel uncomfortable to say, you know, I, I, I saw you were texting. Uh, 
you know, and that was interesting to me because could you tell me like why you did? I mean, and because I, I, these people were comfortable enough with me that they knew that part of what I was expecting to hear was that they felt very upset and it was a way to escape. That was what I was expecting to hear. What did you hear? That they texted during the boring bits. They texted during the boring bits. I mean, you know, I mean, there are boring bits in a funeral. Some people go on and on in their speeches. A lot of people go on and on in their speeches. But the point of those boring bits is that you're in a community, and some members of that community are a little boring. Some are better speakers than others. But you're there together to remind each other that you were in a community with this person who died and to remind the family of the person who died that you were in a community with him or her. Indeed, one of the problems that you outline, and this is a very important problem, is these devices are eroding our ability to empathize. And one of the examples you give are the conversations you've had with teachers from K to 12. These are young kids, maybe eight years old and younger and so forth. And the teachers are saying that the children are not displaying empathy as they once did or as their previous students did. Yes. Can you give me an example of that and what empathy means to an eight-year-old or a six-year-old? Well, it's not just to eight and six. Uh, one of the most dramatic examples of the, what I think of as the empathy gap was 12-year-olds. Because by 12, you know, you really should be able to model some, what's in somebody else's mind and respond appropriately and this, this was a school where I was called in as a consultant. In the book, I call it the Holbrook School. And the teachers were so upset that the 12-year-olds, they said, were playing on the playground like 8-year-olds. And the example they gave was that this 12-year-old had excluded one of her classmates from an all-school function. And let's say kids have always done that. So the dean of the school called her in and said, why did you do that? And this was not an isolated case. And she said, I don't know. And she literally could not be in a conversation about how the other girl might have felt. And so that really was the cause for alarm at this school. Now, how do you know it's related to the children's use of digital platforms? You, you don't. You don't. I mean, the teachers connected it to that because they were saying you know, that the children were having trouble talking in class. They were having trouble concentrating, sustaining a conversation in class. They were having trouble paying attention to each other. The teachers talked about how in the dining hall where they would normally see conversation, the students were not talking to each other, but talking about what was on their phones, that it was hard to get children to have a conversation that wasn't about what was on their phones. Well, to play the other side of that, if conversation is something that we're lacking, do we have to have, as our partner in conversation, a human? Because it seems now we're building these machines. They're sophisticated now, but they're only becoming more so. We heard earlier in the show from the company Toy Talk. They're making a talking Barbie, and it can carry on a conversation with a young person. And the company says specifically that its goal is to promote conversation. Is there any harm in that? Yes, a lot of harm in that. Because empathy is 
someone knowing your state of mind because they've had an experience, a human experience, because you're a human, of what your state of mind might be. Hello, Barbie comes out of the box saying, I have a sister. I feel jealous of my sister. Do you have a sister? Are you jealous of your sister? The doll doesn't have a sister. It doesn't have a mother. It doesn't know what it is to feel jealous. It's a pretend empathy. But the young person may not know that, may not make that distinction. But that's what makes it so dangerous, is because why would we take something as precious as developing the capacity for empathy and destroy its development by pretending that you can nurture it by communicating with an object that has none to give. But how is it different from my playing with Barbie? And yes, I did that growing up. Barbies could not talk back to me, but I talked to Barbie and I also talked to my stuffed animals and everything else. How is this different? Very different because when a doll is passive, the child makes up all sides of the conversation and projects onto the doll what the child needs, what the child fears. So it's the child's imagination that is constructing the world. You know, the the child knows the doll is simply there as a kind of object that supports the child's fantasy life. What happens if this goes unchecked? We don't put any checks and balances in how we use technology, and it continues like this. What will people be like? I know it's speculative, but what will they be like in 20 years or 25 years or something? What would that society be like? I don't think, we're gonna, I don't think that's going to happen because I think that we're going to start to see disruptions in our ability to do, you know, Freud talked about work and love as the two parts of life that you had to get right. Or that whether or not you get them right, you had to get them, you know. I think we're going to start to see disruptions in work and love that are going to be so compelling to us. But I think if we really don't do that, if we really put our children on baby bouncers that have a screen for an iPad, if we have robots read to them instead of looking in them in the eyes and reading to them, <laughs> I mean, there's just this whole world of places where we don't talk to each other, we're going to see kids growing up who don't talk to us back and who don't talk to each other and who don't know how, who don't know how to be vulnerable in the ways that help them be creative and loving. So I don't think it's going to come to that because I think people are starting to realize that we've overreached. We've just overreached, that our phones are not accessories. They're powerful psychological devices, and we need to respect them. Sherry Turkle, thank you so much for the conversation and for coming into the studio so I could talk to you face-to-face. What a pleasure. Sherry Turkle is a professor of social studies of science and technology at MIT and the author of Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age. Well, the verdict in the show is that technology has mixed reviews. Yes, indeed. And here's a technology that everybody would say, this is great, we're putting the information of the world in everybody's hands. But who would have thought that it was going to present such challenges to our social cohesion and that a whole generation may be slightly crippled because of this failure to learn how to interact socially with one another.
Well, thanks to the silent types whose focus helps make this show possible, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to Look Who's Not Talking. If you crave more Big Picture Science, you'll find it in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio, because after all, you're trying to make at least a pretense of not being a slave to the internet, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Do you have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion? Well, throw in some faint praise and email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. Then, after I trained the chicken to fight like a ninja, I dressed it in black leather and threw it in the air where it broke apart and turned into a hundred gold coins that fell to the ground. Would you like to see them? Oh my god, this cat can also open a can of beer. Check out this video. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.